This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast where we try to figure out how we should feel about the weird stuff we do with regards to TV, movies, books, comics, other things, and today's topic, video games. Why lots of adults play them and the degree to which they should be mocked mercilessly for doing so. I'm Mark Linton-Meyer, currently playing a good amount of Grand Theft Auto V on my PS4 and Lemmings on my iPad, yet still in my dreams trying to figure out Zork 1. This is Eric Aspires in New York City, eagerly awaiting the new Last of Us Part 2 so I can backseat drive it with my husband. I'm Brian Hurt, and if I get frustrated with this conversation, I am going to rage quit out of it. Uh, and I'm Ian Mayo, and I am currently playing Spider-Man, going back and playing the Batman Arkham series, as well as Cuphead and my friend Pedro on the Switch. Wow. It's nothing like a game where a banana speaks to you and gives you kill orders. It's delightful. <laughs> so welcome, Ian. You were brought on by Erica. Why don't you tell us some of the relevant experiences, why you are our expert, our someone who is a little deeper in the mayonnaise than the rest of us on this particular topic. Ah, yes. Such a clever play on my name anyway. Um, but yes, so I am, <laughs> I actually have been working in integrated marketing for about the last 10 years. I started in TV and was working at Turner when they launched E-League. I went and worked at IGN, was working on the marketing team there and took a lead on all of our promotional partnerships with the esports divisions, as well as doing some scouting and going out into the marketplace to meet with teams and see what kind of sponsorship opportunities we could build around things such as like Overwatch League, CSGO tournaments, the ES1 in, in New York, as well as Evo in Vegas, which is a big fighting tournament. So got to see a little bit more of the business side of things as opposed to the front side that everybody sees in front of the camera. So a purveyor as well as a uh, partaker. Yes, exactly. I had to do a little bit of research on this. I found an article from TheMedium.com, this, The Esports Phenomenon by Jason Mock. 80% of viewers of the esports are millennials, 18 to 34, and Gen Z, 13 to 17. It's been a huge source of income because advertisers are seeing that these are oftentimes the hardest people to get to through regular media when it comes to advertising. So esports has gotten evidently a lot of money in the last several years, right? To keep on going and keep kids playing and keep people watching at home. What's called out in this article is like, they talk about it being the wild, wild west. It's kind of became a larger thing a few years ago, and no one really knew what to do with it, especially in the United States. And what's interesting about these numbers that you're looking at is that a lot of these are just cumulative. So a lot of it, it's like, oh, where it's being thrown in with like these hundreds of millions of dollars into the industry. And it is all kind of like lump summing into a very large thing. But what is kind of interesting about esports is that it's essentially taking the MLB, NHL, you know, MLB. MLS, every professional sports league, and just essentially, if you took that and lumped together all of their money into one area, and that's what you'd be looking at. So when you look at esports, there's Dota 2, there's League of Legends, there's E-League, which covers Street Fighter, it covers Injustice 2, Mortal Kombat 11. So all these games kind of break down into their own different genres and different areas. And really the only one in the United States that has kind of like tried to establish itself as more of a standard league is Overwatch League. So Overwatch is a game from Blizzard that is kind of a team-based combat. It's a little bit more on, not necessarily cartoon side, but more of an animated look. It's all first-person shooter-ish. They're all heroes that have special abilities. 
And they have actually tried to kind of mold that into the American model of what we see as traditional sports. So each team is going to be located in a city. They have a mascot. They have jerseys that they sell. So everything is kind of like much more standardized in that way. Whereas like there's a lot more different teams and leagues that are kind of more run like European soccer clubs or like a lot of those European teams where they're buying players and that's how they're kind of putting their teams together and they're playing in tournaments as opposed to playing in traditional leagues. There are some leagues that are kind of popping up here and there and they're becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, but everything kind of comes down to like you're earning points, playing in tournaments, then that's how you advance to the next rounds and that's how you get into those big, huge tournaments that you hear about where there's 130,000 spectators, kind of like the Super Bowl. Ian, if I could just build off something that Erica had started when it comes to advertising and reaching this coveted audience. Are there some parallels between esports and traditional sports in sports being a way to have a captive audience that has to look at advertising? I feel like I'm really shielded from seeing ads these days when I watch something that I can forward through them or I can block ads on the internet, but I see ads most of the time when I'm watching baseball or football, and I have no choice because if I want to watch it and I want to watch it live, those ads are going to hit my eyeballs and I'm going to suffer through them. (laughs) Yes. You're going to be bombarded with pretty much ads, especially in the kind of like modern age of any streaming service at this point in time. They're kind of treating players almost kind of like NASCAR. It's like the owners own essentially the rights to the players, their jerseys, and they'll sell logo patches. The first one that got sold through an Overwatch League was for Jack in the Box with the Dallas Fuel. And then they've kind of been able to expand upon that. There's much more jersey tagging. There's going to be, if you watch anything live in its streams, there's going to be branded interstitials. You're going to have advertisers where you're going to have, like, essentially the shoutcasters are going to be shooting custom commercials for car brands. Or right now, Dell is a huge sponsor for a lot of these things. Dell is still around? And they're big in the gaming space because they actually own Alienware as well. So they're sub-brands of everything and they're all participating in different ways. So a lot of it is like product placement still. And like, you know, when I was working at IGN, we did a lot of that stuff with any of our streaming shows. It would be you'd have logos and brands pretty much wherever anybody's sponsoring. There would be lower thirds that would pop up on screen. You're going to get those kind of like really low lift kinds of things as well as the really heavy, heavy stuff for brands like the Coca-Colas of the world that are going to spend a lot of money and really like the down and dirty of it all. I know there's like the Overwatch, the land of Dairy Queen uh, level where you have to jump over the... (laughs) Yes, yes, it's very similar. (laughs) Does the average Overwatch fan who watches Overwatch League, do they play as well? Almost exclusively or not necessarily? I would say generally speaking, you need to have a good understanding of what's happening or else it just looks like organized chaos. You can be just kind of like a passive participant and you're just watching because you have an appreciation for what's happening. I think that that can happen for a lot of people with traditional sports. I think the same thing is starting to happen with esports, especially with things like Counter-Strike Go and like a lot of stuff like that where you understand what's happening, you understand the strategy, team formation and what's going on. Some people have a kind of an affinity towards like anime characters and just kind of like the lore that goes behind things. And so they follow Overwatch does a great job of keeping the story alive as well. So if, if you play, they actually produce these like really high end shorts that go along with everything to kind of progress a story. So it's not just a competition, like there is a living, breathing element to everything. And they're trying to expand that world a little bit more. So you can get into it in a couple of different ways. I would say that like from going and seeing it live a few times in California at their studio, pretty much it's primarily people that have played the games. 
What I think is kind of interesting about the Overwatch model by having these teams based in cities is that it's weird because right now they shoot everything in California. So all these teams that are based in Canada, Japan, uh, Korea, and throughout the United States all play in one place. They all play in one arena, and then that's pretty much it. And they've been starting to do some satellite shows to kind of test the waters. And part of the deal with a lot of the teams is that within two years, they need to have their own arena. So you're getting a kind of a bigger scale, and you're getting a lot more people involved, and you're getting the local people involved. But for now, I think getting it off the ground, people were following teams because they followed individuals. And I think that that's a little bit more about what has happened overseas, especially with the different ones like CSGO and a lot of like Dota and League of Legends, like people start following them on Twitch. They get attached to a personality and a person, and then they follow them through. People who are online streamers, there is that level of personality that is still your personal marketing. You could be great at a game, have no personality and do well. But those people who get taken to the next level, we always had conversations about who we could have on camera, who has a good presence. You know, a lot of it is language barrier, too. You're bringing a lot of people in from around the world and trying to get them in front of the camera. They need to have translators and everything else. And it becomes difficult for advertisers to connect with that. Oh, wow. So is it pretty um, biased towards English, I assume? Here, yes. Everything is done. I mean, like a lot of the shoutcasters are actually either... I think European or Australian that they brought over that have just had more experience with the game. They're high level players. So they understand the ins and outs of all the maps, the strategies, who the coaches are. And even like they've gotten to the point where in the league, there's a lot of trades happening and players are kind of bought and sold. And the darker side of it all is that these are all kids. Like they're all around 18 years old. You have to be 18 to participate in Overwatch League, but some of them are younger. Some of these kids get roped in signing some really bad contracts where they don't get the legal support that they need because it's all new and it's money and they're playing video games. It's what they want to do with their lives. So any money to them is good money. They're doing what they love, right? So what would be an example of a bad contract for a kid like that? I mean, a kid is like who's 18 just trying to make it out and like the chain to choose between college and playing games and what they do is like these teamed ownerships, they'll buy the rights to you. They can put your face on anything they want. You don't really have a lot of say in what's going on. It happens to a lot of kids like who are teen stars and stuff like that, where like Disney will own the rights to Hannah Montana or whatever, and they can put her on lunchboxes, or whatever. And like, if the deal is done right, then they could see none of that profit and they can kind of do with them whatever they want. They can force them into like doing a lot of promotional stuff that they don't necessarily want to, or they're not comfortable with, but they're, you know, they are kids, you know, and they're kind of getting to that point where they're making those big life decisions without having the real experience of like what it's like in the world. Not too different from other sports, right? 18 year old yeah. basketball players and football players and what have you. And some agents that really don't have their client's best interest at heart. And they see the buck they can go after with someone who maybe isn't going to make it. But if they can get that contract signed, then the agent will get a certain percentage or owners that will have players do things that are not quite ready for. So yeah, kids are taking advantage of in both situations. Seeing a lot of parallels as you're talking about esports. Yeah, and I think that one of the biggest concerns, especially right now, is that maybe it won't take off here as it has like overseas. And so I think there's a big cash grab going on about it. It's that, you know, people are really jumping at the opportunity because it's there. I mean, there isn't like a really when Esports started coming up and e-league was becoming a thing. You heard about every celebrity in the world was buying part of a team somewhere. It was like ever like Shaq had a team and Drake has a team. What kind of teams? 
So there's a couple of really big ones. There's like Liquid is a really big team. Team Envy out of Dallas is another one that kind of has been a little bit fledging lately, but they're coming back. What do they play? They play it. So they'll have multiple teams underneath a banner. So they'll play multiple games. They may rep some fighting players. They may rep some CSGO people, Overwatch people, League of Legends, Hearthstone, which is that card game. You know, there's a lot of that stuff where it's like there'll be like a larger banner and have talent that is underneath that banner. So they kind of like own their contract. Elevator action team. I I could probably do that one. That would be amazing. I would love to see just more of like King of Kong and all those guys come out and actually do it. I mean, that's what's funny about all of this is like esports is nothing new. Ever since the 80s, I mean, King of Kong is a great example because like all it was was people competing over getting the high score on Donkey Kong. It was just as simple as that, but it was a, a friendly competition. It wasn't until it really became organized that it became such a bigger deal, you know, and they started keeping track of who has the world records at this. And then it became speed running became a thing, which is like another subgenre where it's like everyone's just competing to beat the game as fast as they can, beat a level as fast as they can. And is there betting on all of these things as well? Honestly, I'm not really sure how the money works on that side of things. I'm sure that there is a certain level of it, especially overseas, where it's a little less regulated than here, because I think it still falls under traditional sports in the U.S. So it may be something that may become bigger. And that just opens itself to a whole other concern, because you're still dealing with kids who really don't have a lot of money and they don't have a lot of insight. So there's a lot of risk there, I think, as well. Mark and Erica, have you seen King of Kong that Ian's talking about, that documentary? No, I haven't. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. I have seen that. It's kind of what you would imagine in terms of, you know, this is not like a picture, even though what you've been describing in sounds like a new phase of traditional athletics. But of course, it's coming out of a totally different space sociologically, right? That video gamers were the geeks where it was something fundamentally opposed as of 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And some of that is just, there's been evolution over time and video games are more accepted. But if you watch The King of Kong, like, that's quite different than watching a sports documentary. Like, those guys are freaking weird. Hey, can I just, as an aside, mention that I met the King of Kong, the ref guy who runs that establishment, who wears the referee uniform? You know who I'm talking about? He's in the movie? Yeah, he runs Fun Spot. It's in New Hampshire. Twin Galaxies is where they keep all the world records. So it's this kind of, like, janky website that he runs himself. But, yeah, Fun Spot is like a a pretty well-known arcade where I grew up and like used to go there during summer vacations and stuff like that. He was at a Worldcon at the World Science Fiction Convention in Kansas City a few years ago, and he had made these like baseball cards of science fiction authors, and he was giving them out to the ones that were there. And he was at the front of the stage talking, and behind him were these writers we all wanted to hear from, these award winners, and he was going on and on about his baseball cards, and I was just muttering under my breath while he kept to get off the stage, like, shut up! And so he finally gets off, and one of my friends just tackled him because he wanted his autograph. So we all have our heroes, I guess. But man, he made me mad. And if he's listening, I guess I'm sorry. (laughs) How's that for an apology? It was so sincere. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'd appreciate it. So one of the things we wanted to explore on this is just where we're at sociologically in terms of this. Like, does it still have the stigma? Is it totally gone? I know as an adult my age, like, I play games with some frequency, but always feel a little 
guilty about it. It's similar to, you know, we just had our binge watching episode. It's similar to that in that there are things you do to relax or out of escapism or whatever. You don't necessarily feel totally good about it, but it seems like video games are, you know, it's a more active thing. A lot of the issues with binge watching aren't there with this. You're pointing out, you know, that there's a whole very sports-like layer that's at least available to this. The stigma is still there, for sure. I think that the general populace is kind of like, you mentioned video games, everybody gives you that same stereotype. So a kid living in his mom's basement, probably smoking a lot of weed and playing games all night, drinking Code Red, which exists. <laughs> I mean, all of that still exists. Some of these kind of like sociological stereotypes exist for a reason. I think that there are those types. When you look at the guys from King of Kong, I think that you're just looking at a new generation of that. I think what's different about now is that what you actually look at as a gamer is completely different because it's something that has evolved so much over time that you can't really call it just a gamer anymore. Like if you went to the back to the 80s and you were like, oh, he's a gamer, he's sitting at home or he's going to an arcade, spending all of his quarters on this. That is what he does. Now it's really become a geographical issue. It's become like mobile gaming versus console gaming versus PC gaming. And there's just so many different ways that you can go about getting access to this content that it doesn't really align one-to-one anymore. We did a study when I was at IGN. There was a, our research team did a whole bunch of digging about like who are gamers and like you could create it into hardcore gamers. The traditional is like your esports player. Then you have like modern core, essentially my age, like in their thirties, plays occasionally, buys six to ten titles a year. They're usually franchises like the FIFA's, the Madden's of the world. And then from there, the actually the audience grows more and more as you kind of go down this funnel. I look at how many hours I play a week. I say I'm a relatively active gamer. And then I look at my mom and she is probably a more of an active gamer than I am. What? What is your mom playing? What's you playing? My mom and dad are just glued to their iPads playing word games, playing oh, Candy Crush, playing yeah. all those Clash of Clans games that are just like, they're all free mobile access. So like, where do you draw the line in terms of what's a video game now versus what's traditionally gaming? You know, do you just look at console and PC in its own light, or do you look at the industry as a whole where a lot of that money is being funneled into these mobile games that are free? You know, that freemium model still works. Like people spend thousands of dollars playing Candy Crush. It's still popular. (laughs) I mean, this is where we have our phone reveals. Here's Lego Tower that I've been, oh no, I've been playing that. (laughs) Mine is just uh, New York Times crosswords. That's really all that I game. Oh yeah, that's what I was doing too. Are you actually doing that too or are you just making fun of me? I haven't paid for the New York Times <laughs> games. I, so I get like that tiny little crossword puzzle that you get done really fast. Yeah. And it says, won't you subscribe? I'm like, I'm already giving you money, New York Times, to read your news. I'm not also going to give you money for your crossword puzzles. I think I give the New York Times $2 a month for their subscription and $7 a month for the crossword subscription. <laughs> Isn't that awful? But it's funny because like, I don't think of that as gaming, but it is. I wouldn't have thought of your mother as a gamer, but yeah, this is a very pretty much pop kind of question and discussion, figuring out the parameters of what it is. For this conversation where we're modeling it around esports, I mean, you're definitely looking at the console and PC gamer. I think that there is a much heavier stigma on those people and those players than there is on like the mobile gamer. Or even one of the things that I wanted to talk about was like, why is it that someone is looked at differently if they go to an arcade, spend all their money on games in an arcade and spend hours there 
they're probably looked at a little bit differently than if they're sitting at home playing games online and talking to their friends through a headset. Which do you think is regarded as less nerdy? Because I'm not sure. I would say less nerdy would be going to an arcade because it's seen as like a social experience. You're out there, you can actually like physically interact and talk to people if you want. I think it's that the option is there. But what's different is about like sitting and talking at home, people just see that as being like this lonely experience where it's like this person is by themselves. They talk to people online that they never meet or they have no connection with. They're just people that kind of like you join up with because you're good at one thing. But if you look at that, that's really no different than any other social circle that you may be a part of. You find a mutual interest and you build a relationship on top of that. One of the things that we talk about is like, there's like me and like your husband play games with our friend who lives in New Jersey. We may live in three different boroughs, but it's our way of catching up. And if you look at it from like, if we keep that analogy of traditional sports with esports or any kind of gaming, what's so different about that than getting people together to watch a game, like going and watching like the playoffs? There isn't anything. What I actually think is more interesting about it is that you're also sharing that experience with them by actually being active in the moment. Like you're playing together, you're talking about what's happening on screen, but then in between rounds or whatever, you're catching up on what happened over the weekend, what's going on in your lives. And then that's how these things kind of just start to cycle and they build upon themselves. It's like social media in a more active sense. One thing I, you know, I wish we all could do more of, and I know why we don't, and it's for a few different reasons, is like when I was growing up and, you know, video games weren't as much of a part of everyone's life. You definitely had the young moms and dads who went out and played softball and, you know, pick up basketball and stuff like that. And that's just not as easy to do with your friends when it takes an hour to get from one borough to the next, or if you're talking about across states or whatever. So yeah, for you guys, it's great because it's maybe not as active as going out and playing a game of basketball, but also we're not going to get injured doing it. So that's a real thing. <laughs> yes, we are old. It is a fact <laughs> of life. My bones sound like bubble wrap in the morning and it's delightful. Ian's a former, uh, Ian played soccer in uh, college as well. So he still does a bit of that now. <laughs> so staying on the inside, is uh, staying indoors now is a good idea for me. <laughs> But I mean, if we're looking at things from that geosocial political landscape, you look at our parents' generations and, you know, you hear, still hear stories about like, I was the first kid for my family to go to college. I think that like opportunities have changed over time as well, where like travel is a lot easier. So you're actually like making friends over longer distances a lot easier now anyway. And maintaining those relationships over time is just more and more difficult as people's lives get busy. And sometimes it's like, yeah, you could watch a game together in different houses, like on the phone, but that's weird. I actually feel like that's way weirder than just getting online and playing video games and just having a conversation. The way I've done it, by the way, I watched the Blackhawks win the Stanley Cup with, I was in Wisconsin, my brother was in Montreal, my dad was in Chicago. And we had to like sync up our TiVos because we were all a little, I guess I was in hotel, I didn't have a choice. We watched the entire game together. And it was awesome. It was a shared experience that we never would have had otherwise. But I think it's an exception and not the rule. But we were able to, you know, we weren't talking every minute in part because we were watching the game. There was an article that we had read that we'll have a link to, which I think, Ian, you brought to our attention. The article titled, For Men Who Hate Talking on the Phone, Games Keep Friendships Alive. Yeah, from Kotaku. I mean, it's just like, it's a great piece about a, uh, just like a man's personal experience talking about that's how he keeps his friends close. 
is that they all share just like one common thing. They just really enjoy playing it. They enjoy keeping it together. You know, talking on the phone sometimes can be awkward. You're walking down the street, you're doing whatever you're doing, like you're distracted, you know, and then you get into this moment that you're just kind of like sharing together and you can just like let things flow like it's natural. Like you're sitting in the same room because you're all looking at the same thing. You're talking about the same thing. You're creating the same actions and you're working together to solve whatever problem you're doing or whatever it is. I don't do a lot of headset based gaming, but I think that article seemed very authentic to me and what they were describing. I I will say, I don't know if, if you are a watcher of the TV show Black Mirror. But there's an episode called Striking Vipers from the current season that stars Anthony Mackie from, uh, he plays uh, Falcon in the Avenger movies. That episode really has to do with the uh, different kinds of bonds and relationships men can form through video games. So it's definitely worth watching that one, even if you're not a regular watcher of the show. I can't remember what podcast it was. If it was one of the ones I normally listen to, if it was This American Life or... Or Radio Lab. This is the only one that I listen but, to. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Liar. <laughs> it will be now. It was talking about the different ways that men and women have conversations. And I know this is like, this is going back to our last talk. What isn't it where we were going about binary and not having binary thinking? But in very general terms, they say that when women sit and talk, they can sit and like have a cup of tea and sit around a table and be fairly idle and just chat. But for men, oftentimes that's not the best way to get a conversation going. For men, sports or something, anything active tends to be a better way for them to get a conversation going and to keep going. So my husband and I have actually employed that. And we realized that times that our schedules aren't going the same and we're both very stressed, we'll take a walk together. Because at those times when we don't have other distractions and we're doing something, we're focusing on walking, somehow the conversation just comes together. When you're just sitting there looking at each other, it's like, how was your day? It gets boring and awkward very quickly, even for people who know each other very well. That was boring and awkward. Oh, I'm sorry. You're boring and awkward. (laughs) I know. It is so true. (laughs) So I'm wondering how, how driving hooks up with that, that that's kind of the same thing. You know, we're here doing something. It is optional for us to talk. And there are things you can do, you know, turning on the radio or not turning on the radio that would potentially influence whether something is going to happen there or not. Just forced being together, like, you know, whether in a workplace or eating dinner is much more natural than when everything has to be deliberate. Like we've won with more convenience. We're not going to be like washing the clothes together in the stream or chopping wood. So we have to invent things. Have you done either of those things in your life, Mark? That's the point. I, I, the fact that I, I would have such better friendships if I had to do that every day with all my neighbors. <laughs> well, it's like kind of an interesting point. Like my mom and dad, when they come to the city, I mean, like we've lived out in the country in Massachusetts for 36 years or whatever it is now. But they always talk about the impersonality of cities now where everyone's on their phone. Everyone's got headphones in. Like you don't just casually meet people on the street anymore. You're not meeting someone down by the stream to do your laundry, but you're also like not doing those other things either. Even like going to bars just is a little bit different. Like it doesn't have that same kind of like closeness to it because the people that you see sitting alone are sitting there scrolling through Twitter or playing a game or doing whatever it is that they want to do that just is living within their own bubble. And I think that's just a very different perspective that we have now of just like how we socialize is just completely changed. Yeah. 
when I first moved to Massachusetts, I was still talking to random people on the street and people thought I was really strange. Yeah, they probably thought you were a homeless person. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a Midwestern thing, I think, Erica. It and is. even coming having spent the last twenty years of my life in Nebraska and now even being in Missouri, people are a little less used to me. People look at me more strangely when I just start talking to them on the street in a way that in Nebraska, I don't know, maybe it's just a thing. You're almost rude if you don't say hi to the stranger you're walking by. And they would never do that in Chicago. Like I already know that that's, I quickly, when I'm back there, I start driving like a Chicagoan and I start acting like one and I don't say hi to people when I'm going down the street. Right. You're right. And St. Louis is a big city too. So that's going to be seen as odd. And like, what are you trying to get from me? I bet even like, cause I haven't spent a lot of time back home lately, but it has changed there a bit too. And it's always a little slower to change there in smaller communities, but it's happening more and more, especially with the new generation and kids just being on their phones a lot. It's going to be so natural when they get older to not have those conversations. So it is a nice spin on the whole technology is ruining our conversations to say that no, actually technology is providing for these conversations in cases like gaming and these games that you have to do tactical work together. It's not just about the game. I hear you guys play sometimes and it's like somebody's throwing out a tactical thing and then it'll be like, oh yeah, by the way, how'd that job interview go? <laughs> yeah, that is generally speaking, like 60% of the conversations are like just whatever's going on in our lives. Then 40% is actually like, who the fuck shot that guy? We need to get around this corner. Or why'd you shoot me, Ian? Why'd you shoot me in the back, Ian? I guess I have a bad reputation now, okay? <laughs> it was one time. <laughs> you make one mistake, and then your husband records it and sends it to all of our friends. <laughs> <laughs> So it seems like there's a good defense as far as social gaming goes as, what a loser, why are you sitting in your house playing video games? Like, well, that's better than doing something purely by myself. How does this transfer to actually playing by yourself? There still seems to be a stigma there. I remember like watching House of Cards. One of the kind of funny things was that like the guy who's the president or the vice president or whatever at the time, that he would still, at the end of the day, he would by himself go like fire up some first person shooter and like that would be a way of there's something transgressive about showing somebody doing that, like who's a suit-wearing person in position of power. It's interesting because I think you're le- they're leaning on that stereotype and juxtaposing it against a character who is the total opposite of what that would be. But I look at my particular group of friends, and we're all young professionals working in the city, and some people work in law offices, and it's like, and it is just a release. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about is like playing games on your own. I don't see much of a difference between like sitting and playing two hours of a video game and watching a two hour movie. It's a form of entertainment. It's a form of escapism. You're actually participating in the story as it goes along. I mean, yes, you can do a first person shooter and it's probably seen as like a little less than, but I mean, I think that in a lot of other cases, like Erica's talking about The Last of Us, which is like a phenomenal game with an incredible story. And it's really something that's emotional and driven. And some of these other games that have come out, like The Heavy Rains and Detroit Become Human, where you're really like, you're actually creating the story as you go along by making the characters make certain decisions, whether it be a binary choice or not. And it's like, you actually drive the story based on what you want to see and how you want to play the game. And I think that it is much more following that similar storyline. And I think that there's much, like, probably less of a stigma around those, but it's still seen in that same stereotype light. And I think that it's like that line between what is the difference between the different art forms 
why is it that watching a horror movie isn't seen in the same light as someone like isn't probably stigmatized as much as someone who sits like you're talking about a guy who goes home and plays a first person shooter after a long day at work. You're not going out and killing somebody, hopefully, but you know, you're still participating in this action. <laughs> like you're not taking notes and are just like gonna go out and be like, oh, there we go. Like now I know how to do it. It's like, no, it's still just a different form of entertainment that is just seen in a different way for some reason. And I'm not really sure why. What do you think, Mark? Because you had brought this up when we first started chatting about ideas for this podcast. One of them was about video games. And why do you think that is? Well, there's two good threads there. I mean, there's the whole doing debasing things and murdering and a similar question to like why people watch horror movies or particularly, I remember there was a, a movie, is it Maniac? Where you're like in the first person with Elijah Wood, but you hardly ever see Elijah Wood because it's from the killer's perspective the entire time. And when I describe that to my wife, she's like, oh, come on, that's going to like, you want to vicariously experience the murderer? That's essentially at least the charge against people who play violent video games. You know, Grand Theft Auto that I'm playing right now, which, you know, I waited until it got cheap. I didn't run out and pay $70 for it. I'm not completely sure. Like, I don't enjoy the fact that there's like a mandatory torture scene in it or a quest that you just can't actually say no to that involves repeatedly torturing somebody. But on the other hand, like, I thought the, I started it with GTA 3, I guess, or one of the, Vice City. They would sell it as, oh, it's just an open world. You can do whatever you want. But like, the main button is hit. <laughs> so like, you just walk around people on the street. I think they made the more recent games like it's less profitable to do this, but like you spend all day just like whapping somebody until they're dead. And then you pick up the money on the ground, taking your car and just running over people willy nilly. And it like was hysterically fun. And the fact that the graphics were not that great, like kind of made it better. The ultra realism of everything has brought it to a new level. And I think like VR in particular is was a huge sticking point. I remember when it first started becoming more into like mainstream pop culture that they were kind of like people were had legitimate concerns that first person shooters were going to become a big part of the VR world and that they were worried that kids were going to start develop PTSD based on the experiences that they're having because it's so real. And I think that's where you're talking about. Is it going too far? Like where is the line drawn and where is it not? Is that like why Overwatch is genius because it just makes it anime that like it's a very high quality graphic shooter, but like it's purposefully artificial. But it wasn't the first, right? Borderlands had cell shading and that was partly why it worked. It was so violent, but it all looked like it was a hand-drawn comic book. Ian, you know, that's so interesting you talk about PTSD because VR has also been used to treat PTSD, right? Through exposure therapy, when someone actually saw something that caused them to have that, they would, through virtual reality, go relive it in a way that was recreated using some video game techniques as well as some other things so they could experience it again and again and finally detach what happened from their own emotional responses to it. You're looking at something in a controlled environment as well. Exactly. Well, and that's why I think that argument that it would cause PTSD was probably, I don't know that it's not going to happen, but it doesn't seem like it's likely to happen. 
It may not be. I mean, it's like to pull into kind of like my way back bag of pop culture. But I mean, there's a whole sequence in Donnie Darko where they make a presentation about like these goggles that you put on babies, right? And that like you could also put, you know, the whole presentation was around putting these beautiful images so that, you know, even though kids aren't remembering what's happening, there's still like something light and fun that's there that they can connect with. And then one of the kids in the class asked, well, what if you put videos of people murdering people in there? Would that make the difference? And Probably. I mean, it's like you also look at it like, you know, people had issues people playing GTA when they're 10 or 12 years old because it's kind of following that same movie fault where it's like PG-13, M-rated games. There was a huge crackdown at like all the Walmarts about people being sold games to underage kids. You know, is it something where you're in that developmental stage that you could develop these feelings? Like maybe an adult's like something like PTSD may not develop, but you're putting teenagers into a VR game that takes place in a war zone, like maybe that's different. Maybe it, it is something like you create like this horror. I already know that there are horror VR games where you wander around houses and shit pops out of the walls. And, and they are, are getting very killed. scary. Yeah. It's like, where does that development stop? And you know, where you're kind of creating those emotions. Cause like you think about like what you were scared of as a kid and are you still scared of that today? I'm still scared of spiders and snakes. I was scared of them as a kid. I never got over that fear. Some people get over those things and they move on, but some people don't and it sticks. There's always like the one case where like, okay, that may be the one that sticks. We now move to the part of our podcast where we all talk about our darkest fears. (laughs) (laughs) Who's next? Yes. I know he's not even in this country, but I'm worried my brother's going to punch me in the arm really hard. (laughs) Oh, he is. Yeah, mine's more like being trapped and tortured. But that's probably also because I have two older brothers that would sit on me, fart on my head. (laughs) See, I don't normally associate video games with with darkest fears. Like, even if you're playing, like, what, a Slender Man game and some of these other kind of things that, like, are purposefully, like, everything's dark and it's going to... Or or dead space that every single monster (laughs) they try to make surprise you and, like, make you flinch a little bit. That kind of stuff, I mean, is like horror movies, is not debasing you is not i think that's not the fear of like the columbine shooters or whatever like oh they played all these violent video games like it's not because they were being scared by something well there's this article that we pointed to how video games affect the brain by hannah nichols it was on medical news today i believe it mentioned that that has really not been proven they've done study after study and from their research, 71% of parents say that they think that video games have a positive influence on their child's life. And that first-person shooters and action games in particular can change how our brains perform and their structure and helping people have greater attention. Gamers require less activation to stay focused on a task. And I somehow thought that would be opposite because if things are happening all around you so fast, you would think that that would cause people to need more to come at them to hold their attention, but evidently not. You learn, I guess, how to focus, how to selectively focus on things and how to complete a task. Yeah, I think it all comes back to that active element. I mean, you have that active stimuli where like in your hands, you're controlling what is happening on screen. So you have to be paying attention. You guys have talked about binge watching. It's like binge watching is an extremely passive thing where like I remember being around friends and they're like, yeah, I watched six hours of whatever in a weekend and I sat on my phone the whole time and like, yeah, I knew kind of what was happening. It's like your attention is two different places focusing on two different things. 
when I was at Turner, we talked a lot about that because we were talking about how the cable landscape was changing because people are using two different screens to do everything all the time. You know, you're looking at your phone while you're watching TV. You know, you're looking at your phone, you're going on Facebook and on the commercial breaks or Instagram or whatever it is that you're doing. You know, with gaming, there is no break to look at a second screen. The screen is has your full attention and it has you absorbed into the like whatever world you're going into. You know, something like the Overwatches and the Battle Royale, Call of Duty games, where it's all team-based combat. I mean, there's a problem-solving element to it all. There's a strategy to it where you need to coordinate. And so you're constantly thinking and it grabs your attention. You know, and even those single-player games like The Last of Us and Detroit Become Human, while there may be not as much of an action element to it, like it's absorbing you and it's making you an active participant in the story, which is something that TV and movies have really never been able to do. And so that's why I think like it makes sense that there is that bit of problem solving development that kind of comes along with it because there is that active stimuli and you're focused on a given task that you need to complete. There's levels, there's trophies, there's challenges, there's all these things that you're trying to compete with yourself or with other people to accomplish. So you're constantly focusing on multiple things at the same time. Ian, one thing I wanted to ask about when it comes to this idea of problem solving actually ties to another article that we had. It was in Psychology Today. The title was Seven Reasons to Play Computer Games by Ryan Anderson. And one of them, the very first one was failure is the key to success, right? And it talks about how, especially in first-person games, which are the ones I generally play because I'm pretty bad at games and I can't play team games because everyone will hate me. So this idea of problem-solving and repeated failure, to my mind, I do a lot of problem-solving and a lot of failing And I'm problem solving in a way that doesn't really have any analog to the real world because I'm constantly dying. And that's not a good way to problem solve in my daily life to flame out miserably over and over again. I want to maybe minimize that in the real world. You want to try to mitigate risk in a way that, well, pressing the up button killed Laura. So maybe I'm going to press the right button this time and see if that does it. What really is the value of video game problem solving when it is nothing like real world problem solving. You can look at it from two different perspectives. Like you can look at it from your team based game where you're constantly like, I feel like that problem solving is different because you're having to look at a given situation, coordinate with other individuals and figure out how to work as a collective unit as opposed to an individual. I think there is some value in that and that applies to the real world. I mean, it may not be like, Oh, how am I going to deal with my coworkers while we're given this assignment? But it gives you the skills to be able to look at a given situation from a, like a thousand foot view and understand how you need to move the people around you or influence the people around you to get done what you need to get done. There is a collective goal to that. I think from an individual perspective, I think it all depends on like where in your cognitive development you are. I think maybe for an adult, it's probably a little bit different. I think it's more of like a challenge for us to get it done right the first time. Whereas I think like if you look at, you know, a puzzle game, or like a simple challenge game, like even like a game like Cuphead or Celeste, where there's a lot of trial and error and you're understanding the environments and figuring out the physics, there's, you know, there is a certain level of like problem solving involved, but how is it different than doing something like anagrams or something like that as a kid? I think there is some level of like problem solving there because you're looking at a situation and you're trying it and you're figuring it out and that helps you move forward. I think it just kind of teaches you that 
you're mitigating the risk as you move along. Because I think what you're doing is you're figuring out how the game works and how the world that you're in reacts. And everyone's a little bit different. So that when you move on to the next stage, you're developing those skills further so that you know not to make the same mistakes in the second round. And then you keep progressing that. And that's how those kind of those games, especially like one of the best ones I could think of is like the original Super Mario games are incredibly difficult. But it's one of those games that you look at that does not have a difficulty setting. So it does not have an easy, medium, hard, incredibly difficult, like the games like Doom or any of those do now, where it's like, you know, just a million enemies everywhere. And really, you just had to have lightning quick reflexes. But if you look at the original Mario games, and actually, they still continue to this day, like with Super Mario Odyssey, there is no difficulty setting. Because what the game does is it teaches you how to react in the world and develop the skills as you're moving along. So you're actually improving upon everything you knew. So everything has a purpose and you're kind of like developing the way to think within that given world. And I think there is some kind of real world possibilities to that. I think that there is a way that you're developing skills in your job that the next day you make a mistake. Okay, that mistake happened. So like now I need to know that that's okay and I move on to the next thing. Everything becomes a cumulative effect and you're kind of moving and becoming a better person, you're becoming better at your job, you're becoming better at a game, becoming better at a sport. It's all a learned experience. And unafraid to fail. I think part of the reason I don't like playing video games is because I don't like failing. And that was something like as a kid too, I had like a hard time with. I was fine when it was like a team sport usually. But things that I was trying on my own, if people could see me fail, it was really hard. And so when I would play video games, I would do what you were talking about, Brian. I would get really mad. My brothers and I would play. They were like three, four years older than me, right? And we'd be playing NBA Jam. And of course, they'd be beating me. And I would either throw the remote, which I would get in really big trouble for, or I would run up, <laughs> run up to the console and hit power before the game ended so that they couldn't claim the win. Yeah, <laughs> you're, a rage, awesome. you're a rage quitter. I am a rage quitter. I'm terrible. This is why I don't touch them because I feel like I, I'm too emotionally involved. <laughs> but had I stuck with it, it probably would have been really good for me because it would have helped those kinds of skills that I, I have trouble with. It would be interesting to see if there was a study of like how loudly people swear when they lose, like based on age, based on experience playing games, like <laughs> how frustrated they get or whether it's really just a matter of, you know, individual personalities. And I'm kind of a chill guy. And so like I can play one of those games where you just die, 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 die. It's like, it's fine. Just re, you know, <laughs> very seldom am I driven to the edge of madness by frustration, but I remember telling my son when he was much younger playing games like, look, if this is making you that upset, then you need to stop. <laughs> also, right now, so we're talking, we got three guys and one gal, and you guys all play video games to some degree or another, and I don't do much of that. So maybe we should uh, chat a little bit about that. And I know that that is a trend that's changing, but so my husband used to play a lot of Destiny, and he was a squad lieutenant. And he had to take care of a lot of, it wasn't even just about doing tactical things with the team. If somebody on the team was giving somebody else a hard time or saying things that were not allowed on the forum, then he had to shut them down. And he had one girl on the team who would sometimes get flack from one of the guys. And so he at one point had to kind of threaten the guy, like, if you don't shape up, we're going to have to kick you off of the team because you're saying things that are sexist to this person. This is something I think that gaming is doing better with as it's going on. But can you talk a little bit about the inclusion as it pertains to esports or as it pertains to even the LGBTQ community in gaming? 
one of the hardest parts is that it's just like any other industry. They're struggling with inclusion. They're struggling with like, I mean, internet trolls is the biggest thing that you're going to run across. People in game, you know, we play Call of Duty as a group and it's like you look at people's names that they have and it's just kind of like, how are you comfortable with that and putting that out into the world is like a representation of you. And I think there is a lot of that. I think there still is a lot of that in the gaming community. And I think that's really hard. You know, working at IGN, like we had to monitor our boards pretty closely, especially if anything was sponsored, you know, to make sure that there really wasn't any of that going on. But I think with that within any of these communities, there's always growth. I think that's one of the biggest things is that what's great about gaming is it's an even playing field. Like everyone's playing on the same games with the same equipment, except for maybe like PC speed and like reducing lag, like all those like little minutia, like there are differences, but everyone's playing in the same game. It's not like playing soccer where a field's a little bit different or playing basketball where it's like just you're at the home field advantage, all those kinds of things. It's like you're using all the same stuff, playing the same game, reacting to the same things that are happening. One of the great equalizers is just being better. There is a level of respect that comes with that. Like at the Video Game Awards last year, Sonic Fox, who is one of the best fighting game players in the world, won like esports player of the year. And he came up on stage and really like kind of poured his heart out in his speech. And he's talking about how like he's essentially a triple threat. He's black, he's very gay, and he's a furry. He shows up to all of his tournaments and plays in a fox costume because that's just who he is. What gaming has helped a lot of people who are dealing with those kinds of issues is that it gives them a place where everyone's the same. Like everyone's playing on the same thing. Like everyone's sharing that experience together. And like it does create a sense of community. And it's the good and the bad of being shielded behind a screen is that there's nothing to react to beyond what your talents are until you start to go out into the world in these tournaments and really putting your face into the world. And I think it's a big deal for a lot of people who are going out there. Like there was a kid who he was from Mexico, who was in a fight, a bunch of fighting tournaments. And it was some of his first things were like going out in public and playing games was how he made friends. It was just like, he started doing tournaments. He would play by himself. And then that's how he made his friends and how he built his community around this like shared love of a given thing. You're making me love gaming right now. This well, making you love a very small portion of gaming right now. <laughs> so, so Erica, like you might not be into StarCraft, but I think they have StarCraft Pink and it costs uh, 30% more. It's exactly the same. <laughs> it and just, is it just, uh, just a little smaller? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's really cute. Everybody gets a bedazzler. <laughs> well, yeah, the prize money is 20% of what it is for the men. Oh, God, that hurts. W StarCraft. So I think with all these things, obviously gaming, there's so many different kinds of games. We could spend hours and hours going, and, and we will in future episodes go through some of these more particular game genres. But just sort of thinking globally as we inch toward the end here, it's a matter of how you use it. Like I know my habits in video game playing are similar in some ways. This is why I was lumping it with our binge watching thing that like games in particular, it's like a continuous story. Obviously, it depends what kind of game you're playing. If It's not going to happen if you're just playing Frogger. You know, for me, it's like binging a season of something. Like, I will get into a game and just completely, like, lose perspective and play it like crazy for a couple days. And then I might just go completely cold turkey. Like, okay, that's enough of that. Like, after a couple of weeks of staying up too late and giving myself to this, like, it's hard for me, the way these are purposely designed, to have moderation about them. And part of that is because it's not a social matter. Like if you have your specific time that you're getting together with your friends and playing Diablo or whatever, like that would be better than merely being left to your own devices, at least for somebody like me. 
what was interesting in some of the articles that we shared together was that a lot of the issues that come out of like around gaming and people is that talk about it being like almost equivalent to an addiction that people with like an addictive personality or that there is like, I can't remember what they labeled it as from the world health organization. What was it? Some syndrome. The vice article mentioned two of them and one seemed to be the more worrisome of the two, which involved actually becoming violent or mentally ill from watching them. Hazardous gaming is the one I just mentioned. I think it's the first one. Gaming disorder. Yeah, so essentially it's saying that like playing games and having a disorder is like it's where video games are taking over your life is something different. I think that it's similar to addiction where you're talking about, you know, everything is okay in moderation. Sometimes that we just use that as a crutch too, where it's like we know things, certain things are bad for us. Smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, doing drugs. If they're done in moderation, we're probably going to be fine. Ian, are you telling people to take drugs in moderation? Well, yeah, obviously. (laughs) Just be careful. (laughs) Kids out there, don't do drugs. It's one of those things where like, yeah, if it controls your life and it's keeping you from developing social graces, like learning how to go out and make friends, how to talk to people on a personal level... If it's getting in the way of your job or your relationship or your family, it's like, obviously, it's not good for you. And I think that people use like violent video games as kind of like, that's the go-to. Like, it's the low-hanging fruit of the argument because it's something that people understand. They see violence, they equate it to violence, and that's it. They don't look at the other factors of people's lives because it gives them an arrow to point in a direction. Playing video games can be really good for you. It can do all the things we've talked about. It can help you develop problem-solving skills. It can help you make money. It can help you keep closer friendships. It can do a lot of great, but it also can do a lot of bad. So can a lot of other things. Like people binge watch TV to the point where they don't go out all weekend. Binging does not have a great connotation to it. So there is that kind of negative relationship to it as well. And it's one of those things that we don't even realize that we equated to it, but we did. And we've made it something acceptable, which is also kind of interesting. Brian, did you have some closing thoughts? Well, sure. And I don't know if my microphone is picking this up or not. We're recording this on July 3rd, and I live in a state that people drive to to get fireworks. So they're going off in the distance. So as I think about dumb things that are highly acceptable, but are actually extraordinarily stupid, I'm putting fireworks (laughs) especially the ones you light in your backyard way above video games so i know my own cycles when it comes to playing video games i play a lot of first person games which means i either finish them or i can't finish them and i quit i I don't tend to get into that addictive cycles that i think are more associated with online games or things that people say they lost their job playing world of warcraft because they accidentally missed a week of work you know that hasn't really happened to me but i see the potential you know, I'm not saying that there's not a, a risk, but just as you can not make friends because you play video games, they can also be the reason you do make friends. So I'm not judging anyone on this. Our editor, Tyler, was going to join us tonight, but I think he was in the middle of a game and he just couldn't stop. Gamers are people too, guys. That's what we need to remember here. <laughs> and it was the, it was the iPhone uh, fireworks simulator game. He could not tear himself away. <laughs> Side note, my favorite annual release is Farming Simulator. It makes crazy money. No idea why. It has nothing new done to it pretty much every year, but a new one comes out, and it's hilariously amazing. We didn't spend a lot of hours on the Goat Simulator game that we we got for free with the Xbox at some point. It is amusing to go around being a goat on roller skates, but there's only so far you want to take that. 
So guys, what do you think your uh, next game will be? Devil May Cry 5 is next lined up. <laughs> I always just play whatever console one my son has played last. So he got me through Bloodborne and the, what are the fantasy versions of those? Dark Souls? Dark Souls, yes. Dark Souls 2 and 3 and a little bit of 1. So there was a new samurai sort of version of that. Yeah. The Shadows same. Die Twice oh. is the subtitle of Erica, I had to look on my calendar for this because when I know games are coming out and I have a release date, I actually put them on there. It's Borderlands 3 is going to be coming out in September. So, oh. so that's happening. Erica, get very excited about that because it's going to be co-op. So you're going to be hearing a lot of me and your husband playing together. I'm sure I will. You know, so about a month ago, we started Tales from the Borderlands. He had already played it, but he's like, I think you'll really like this one because you can get into the characters. And so basically on those games, it's kind of fun because he just lets me make all the choices and then he does the controller because I'm not so good at that. But yeah, I think maybe we'll get back into that one and see what happens with those crazy kids. Have you guys played Tales from the Borderlands? If you like Borderlands? That's the only one I didn't finish. I own it and I never played it. And I knew someone who was involved in developing it and I feel bad and I don't want to tell her I haven't played it. So, Well, you've told her now. You can cut that from the podcast. You don't have to. You're a terrible friend. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Ian, and giving us your perspective on this. This was awesome. Thanks, Ian, for joining us. Oh, yeah. This was really great. Me. You guys have all of my thoughts now. I have none left. Uh... <laughs> I then doubt you're ready that. to go play video games with <laughs> Empty brain of yours. Well, maybe we can play some Borderlands together. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. We'll all share our, our network IDs and it'll be great. I think podcasting just has replaced online video gaming for at least Brian and me. We used to do that kind of thing together. It's the evolution of gaming is becoming <laughs> retroactive. It's just, it's just getting rid of the game and, and actually just talking again. Aww. That's adorable. Thanks so much, Ian, for coming on. And this is great. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you enjoyed this, I have two other podcasts to recommend that you might also enjoy. See You on the Other Side is a podcast all about the collision of music and the paranormal. Interviews with leading researchers and investigators mixed with psychic experiments, haunted rock venues, and real-life tales of the unexplained. Where coast-to-coast AM meets South by Southwest, See You on the Other Side podcast is a rock band's journey into the paranormal. Over 250 episodes available at othersidepodcast.com. Have you heard of comedian and comic book author Daniel Lobel? If yes, you might like his podcast, and if not, then you really might like his podcast. It's called Modern Day Philosophers. It's a show that uses some philosophy quotes to better paint a portrait of who he's interviewing. He does this by bouncing the guest philosophies off those of the philosopher whose quotes they're discussing. Philosophy comes custom-picked for each guest by his comedian friend, Alex Fosella. It's not a comedy show, and it's not a philosophy show. It's both, and it's neither. It's its own thing, but it's a beautiful thing. Modern-day philosophers get it wherever pods are casted. Go check it out today. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, Did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. 
It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.